I think we're our greatest threat. I think the failure to be willing to change and look at things differently is greater than any external threat. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On the podcast today, I'm joined by Dr. Peter Weinstein. Peter has had a rich, varied and successful career based in Southern California. He's a graduate of Cornell University and got his veterinary degree from the University of Illinois. After graduation, he worked as an associate for three years before opening his own practice. While running his practice, he, like many of us, learned the hard way that it takes way more than just a love of animals to run a successful veterinary hospital, and so undertook his Master's in Business Administration, a decision that made a major positive impact on his trajectory and his practice subsequently took off, resulting in its eventual sale to Corporate Consolidator, at which point Peter segued out of clinical practice and into the land of politics and business consulting. In part two of his career, he served as President and Executive Director of the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association, President of the California Medical Association, and he's past President for the consulting group Vet Partners in the US. Additionally, he acted as medical director in the claims department for a large US-based pet insurer. In short, there are few people on the planet who've seen veterinary medicine from so many different angles. Peter now provides consulting services, paw consulting, and perhaps most excitingly, co-authored the e-myth veterinarian with global business legend Michael Gerber. I tell you what, it's lucky this is a podcast as I'm going a quite sickening hue of green here. Such is my tragic combination of love and envy for this project. Peter is a fun guy with a massive amount of life and veterinary knowledge to share. So it was a real pleasure and honour to have him on the show. This episode will bring you value regardless of your role covering topics like how to deal with failure, his opinion on the state of the veterinary profession, his approach to self-development and how to have success as a small business owner. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did and get massive, massive value from it. Peter is a good sport. He traveled a long way to see me. So my thanks do go to him. And without further ado, I give you my conversation with the legend that is Dr. Peter Weinstein. So we're sat here in the restaurant in the Omni Hotel opposite the San Diego Conference Center. It is about 24 degrees. What is 77 Fahrenheit. I have no idea what Fahrenheit like actually equates to. Like, it's a ridiculous multiple, right? 25, 5, 30, about uh, between about 28. 28. It's lovely outside. I was in danger of getting sunburned. My pasty white Scottish complexion. Yeah, you almost flame out when you get in the sun, don't you? 100% catch fire. How I made it through Australia for seven (laughs) years is everyone has a mystery about that. So I am joined by I'm really excited to have today's guest. I've got Peter Weinstein, who I had the pleasure of first meeting at the AVBA conference in Melbourne. That must have been like four or five years ago. I believe so, five years ago. So, And Peter and his lovely wife, Sharon, were there. So I got to know them and both have made the drive down to San Diego for the podcast. So Peter, thank you for coming down. Welcome to the podcast. Appreciate your time. My pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dave, for the invitation pleasure is all mine and actually I think soon to be all of our listeners out there. So Peter, let's get, so what we usually do is we just get started and just 
paint a bit of a tapestry for those that don't know who Peter Weinstein is. Paint a bit of a tapestry of you know who you are, where you've come from, and yeah, educate our listeners. Who is Peter Weinstein? Who is Peter Weinstein? I think, as the case in most veterinarians, I was a child prodigy. I decided at a very young age, like many of the listeners, to become a veterinarian, probably 13 or 14. I had the benefit of a mother who was a biology teacher and a grandfather who was the classic general practitioner, the one who had the his office in the first floor of his house, lived upstairs, made house calls, the classic background from that standpoint. Surgery on the kitchen table. Surgery on the kitchen table, right. yes. He, he repaired my broken leg using fluoroscopy. I'm surprised I don't glow in the dark. <laughs> uh, you know, that sort of thing. So I grew up with cats and we spent a lot of time visiting the veterinarian and I just decided probably when I was 10, 11, 12 that I wanted to become a veterinarian. Hmm. Was that a sort of rural uh, was it a country sort of location, or were you city, or whereabouts was, were you? It's suburb to New York City. Suburb to New York City. So basically, okay. it was a 20-minute train ride to um, Madison Square Garden. Okay. So classic Long Island. I can do my New York accent if you want. Oh, do, please. Yeah. Like I, I've. So we've had actually a sidebar moment. We've had a lot of fun with people teasing me about my accent. What and accent? Then, right, exactly. My mid Atlantic accent. And all of the other amazing speakers that are here, all coming from dotted around the country and, and me trying to do their accents. And I have to say, I've had way more success doing their accents than they have had doing my accent. So you could give us some, some New York and maybe some Scottish. Uh, well, I've done my best <laughs> to lose my New York accent. And when I do go back to New York, it comes back uh, because I start to speed up in, right. in speaking. And that's... Yeah. New York, I think a lot of it is be because of speed uh, from that standpoint. Cadence, isn't it? And yeah, I, absolutely. I, I've, I've been corrected because it's not really New York. That's more of an, a Joysy thing, right. right? It's not New York. No. Yeah, and I, I'm a Long Islander. So oh. <laughs> where that Long Island becomes one word. So, <laughs> so I grew up in the suburbs and um, started working for veterinary practice when I was 15, cleaning cages, walking dogs. Yep. And it was... The classic presentation, of course, the greatest influence beyond the genetic influence was James Harriet released All Creatures Great and Small right around that time. You weren't even conceived at that point. You were probably inconceivable. And so I read that and it was like, I want to grow up and be James Harriet. I mean, if, don't we all want to grow up and be James Harriet? I, I like my influence as well, 100%. Glasgow graduate as well. Well, and, and uh, he had the accent down before you did. <laughs> So I, I did everything I could from the time I was 15 to go to veterinary school and become a veterinarian, uh, did well in school, went to Cornell University undergrad, studied pre-vet. I started out as an animal science major, went to a, become a biology major, and uh, then had the first of many challenges, which was the reality check, applying to veterinary school and not getting in. Hmm. Okay. So all of you who are listening, who are rejects, I'm one of you. And uh, so it took me a number of applications. I had to move from New York, become a resident of Illinois, and then ended up going to veterinary school at the University of Illinois. 
so once you had made the application and that didn't go through, is that you done? You can't apply there again? Did they give you feedback on that or it's just a straight, no, you're not for us? No, they gave me feedback okay. and they said, we have 800 applicants and you're number 400 and something. And I said, okay, good. So that means that the bell-shaped curve, I'm right in the middle of the bell-shaped curve. Don't you take anybody from the middle? No, we only take people from one end of the bell-shaped curve and the other end is the tail. And, you know, right below the tail, well, you're not there yet, but you're working your way to that direction. <laughs> so I was in the middle of a large application pool. How many places were available at that 80. time? 80. 80 at places for, with 800 applications. So 10 to 1. That's, right. that's roughly what it was like when I applied as well. Mm-hmm. That's interesting as a statistic is what may have changed about now. I actually have some questions about... And this, and forgive me, because often we do bounce around on you know the timeline and think questions as they come up. No sweat. But what was interesting to me, and this might take us down a completely different rabbit hole, but I wondered, and I always have this question. I was writing an article yesterday about the products that we're bringing new graduates into at the moment, or we're offering to the market, as in the jobs. And the fact that certainly over the last three years, when I was coming here three years ago asking about, is it hard to recruit vets? And it didn't seem like it was that terribly hard. People would put an advert on Craigslist and then they would have applicants. Now, three years later, I ask who's having challenges recruiting vets? Every single person without fail puts their hand up. Now, I find that interesting because that's the trend in the UK. It's the trend in Australia. And so it makes me think that perhaps the product that we are offering to the market there's a disconnect to what people are doing. Now, where I'm going with this in, in a very roundabout sort of way was one of your daughters, Brooke's a pre-vet student. Correct. And so I wondered about you know class sizes, how many applicants go in for each place now, which you might have insight to, because I'm sure she's going through that process at the minute. And the question I had was, would we advise or, or steer our children towards veterinary medicine now, given the debt levels that we see? Is that like, and, and clearly for you, like the answer would, I don't know if the answer would be steer, but certainly not steer away or get in the way. Can you tell me like your thoughts around that? Like, are you sort of pro that? Do you see a sort of a good future for veterinary professions, veterinary professionals? And what do you think are maybe the major changes that have occurred, the fluxes that have occurred since since you were a, a graduate, which, and then I'm probably not that far behind you, I don't think. We've definitely got some gray in my hair as well now, <laughs> compared to now what your daughter's going to be going through. So not only did you bring me into a rabbit hole, but you brought me into the entire maze of a rabbit hole there. So <laughs> That's my forte, like huge, complicated questions. <laughs> let's look at a variety of different things. Going back to your original premises, has the application world changed in the last three years? I think it has, and I think a lot of it in the United States and probably in other parts of the country reflects economic growth. In my role with the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association, we help practices find veterinarians by running classifieds. Okay. In 2008 and 2009, the number of classified ads that we were running for veterinarians bottomed out. I mean, we were down to like one page. Yep. And we were using large font to fill the page. Yep. We're now pushing four, four and a half pages plus online listings. And I have practices that are going six months, a year, or even two years without being able to find a veterinarian. So if you read 
the veterinary news magazines going back, we have too many veterinarians. We're graduating too many veterinarians. We don't need more veterinary schools. I think what we are seeing is we are increasing the number of seats and the cost per seat has gone up significantly. But, and here's the big but. Can I say that? You can certainly. (laughs) This is my podcast. You can say anything you like. In the United States, we graduate about 4,000 students per year, give or take. Half of those, or a large percentage, between 40 and 50, will go on to post-secondary education, which will be residencies and internships. Yep. So we now have, let's just say we now have 2,500 people leaving and going into private practice. Some of those will go to large animals, some will go mixed, some will go to research, and then let's just say we're down to about fifteen or 1,800 that are going to go into small animal clinical practice right out of school. Well, you're taking those and you're spreading those around 50 states. Well, that's great in Southern California. Right. How many practices across those 50 states? Are there any estimates on sort of that size in the U.S. right now? This is, this is a, a blind guess. Yeah. 28,000. Okay. And of that 28,000, a large portion of those are corporately owned. I I shouldn't say a large portion, a good portion, say 10 to 12% are corporately owned, and they are aggressively looking for veterinarians as well. So the private practitioner, the independent practice, has tremendous competition in terms of this pool. And we all have a line in the water trying to catch fish, and it depends on what bait you're using. And it depends upon, and that bait would be money and benefits and everything else. It also is what are our young graduates looking for? And can a single doctor practitioner provide that satisfaction? Right. And in terms of satisfaction, what do you think gives satisfaction? And that a single doctor can, that maybe a more corporate structure can? Well, I think... Again, we have so many moving parts and so many different types of individuals. For some veterinarians, it's money. Right. For some veterinarians, it's lifestyle. Some veterinarians, it's location. And I think location tends to be an important component because with location, you have family who might be moving with you, spouse or significant other. Lifestyle may be significant. Some people want a beach, mountain. The issue that I see in veterinary medicine is we have a maldistribution of graduates. That's because we tend to choose applicants from regions and lower income regions, lower populated regions, which may have a greater need for veterinarians, aren't necessarily sending a lot of applicants into the pool. They're not putting a lot of fish into the water. Got it. And so if you're getting a large population from the urban centers, New York, Miami, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, Dallas, et cetera, then that's where you're going to get mostly your pool from. And if you think about it, if you know, we talked about James Harriet, this used to be a agrarian profession. Yes. It is now a companion animal profession. And even the number of veterinarians necessary to handle a beef animal herd or a dairy herd are much lower than they used to be. Yeah. So we've got a whole changing dynamic, and I'm not so sure that the veterinary schools have changed their teaching approach from what they did when I was in school 30-plus years ago, when James Harriet was in school 70 or 80 years ago, to what we need in 2017 and going forward. So...
in answer to your question about my daughter, right. what do I tell her? Yeah. I told her I would support her in whatever decision she made, and I would give her the resources and the help to help her accomplish whatever goal that she wanted, which is the same message I got from my parents when I was applying. As I mentioned, my grandfather was an MD. My mom was a biology teacher. Nobody ever told me in my family, why don't you become an RD, a real doctor? <laughs> now, I could say the guidance counselors in school did, yeah. but not uh, my family. And that's what I've done for Brooke, is I've given her all the help she needs to ultimately make the decision that will make her happy. And did you, as a parent, as a funder, mm -hmm. I'm imagining, of a young veterinary doctor, do you have an opinion on the economics of that as an investment today and for the lifetime of the graduates that are graduating here? And to a certain extent, I think a lesser extent in UK and Australia, but the, the debt levels are certainly creeping up across the the planet. Certainly when I graduated, I only graduated with student loans and the teaching was free. Mm -hmm. Now the students in the UK are, are graduating with maybe 40 or 50,000 plus living expenses. And here you're not getting a lot of change from a couple of hundred thousand as if numbers are to be believed. So what do you feel about that as an investment as a parent, but also knowing the market as you do, because you're intimately associated with that? As you know, I sit on the the committee, uh, the Veterinary Economic Strategy Committee, and we look at this, these numbers, and student debt being pushing 160,000, 170,000, some of the schools on 250,000, and the earning capacity being still somewhat stunted in what it should be based upon effective and efficient use of staff and growth of practice. Those are two different discussions. <laughs> you know, if a parent came to me and said, my kid wants to be a veterinarian, I'm concerned, what should I do? I'd say you need to do your due diligence. I think you need to learn about what makes a young veterinarian successful. I think you need to learn about how to best economize the cost of education, whether it's through scholarships or working while you're in school. I think you need to look at the different schools and, and obviously try to find a state school so that you can have resident tuition versus non-resident tuition. But I don't think you should ever be a dream killer. And I think you should be a dream supporter, but I think you need to do the research that's necessary and appropriate to help guide your child in that dream. Brooke will graduate from veterinary school with some debt. She was nice enough to go to a state school undergraduate that made things a lot more affordable. But what I'm hoping is by the time she leaves school that her earning capacity will be such that that debt won't be as daunting. Right. I think we need to work on narrowing the debt-to-income ratio so that the student debt is a livable debt in light of the income that we have because doctors graduate with a lot of debt, attorneys graduate with a lot of debt, dentists graduate with a lot of debt, but they have the greater capacity to earn. And more debt for debt. I mean, I was speaking to a colleague who's a dentist here and some schools there are charging north of half a million for mm -hmm. their, their dental training program. Right. But they can make more money. Right. That we seem to have, we are growing our debt faster than we're growing our income. Right. And that disconnect is the greatest So concern. which end do you think is the most feasible for us to work on? Is it the earning capacity or is it the tuition fee appreciation not being as 
Because I feel like one of those isn't going to happen in a hurry. Like, how do you tell universities to not charge as much? So the opinion you're about to hear is my opinion only and doesn't reflect the opinions of any other committees, task force, (laughs) associations, or anybody else who I might work with. I think you need to work on both, but I would agree with you, David. I don't think that the universities have a motivation to change. I, I do think they are concerned, and I think they're looking at it, but it's much harder. They're the Queen Mary. They're a much harder ship to turn. Right. And I think that private veterinary practice is also a Queen Mary in many ways and very hard to turn because it's the way we've been doing it for years. Right. So we need to look at other sources, whether these are scholarships, whether these are endowments, whether these are some sort of what I'd like to call indentured servitude, where people come from a community and that community pays them to come back and work in that community, whether it's a rural community, whether it's a lower income community. I think we need to start to think differently. I would like to say that the veterinary profession and thinking differently are oxymorons (laughs) and change is glacial. So we need to look at different ways to narrow that debt-to-income ratio. And I know a lot of the universities are working on their endowments to help the students with grants, with scholarships. We've got to get it down to a tenable level so that being a veterinarian is a greater career and not just a job, which is what I think a lot of our graduates are looking at it as, is a job for income to pay down the bills and not as a career. I think those of us who graduated 30 plus years ago, it was a career. I think there's a lot of change in the viewpoint of things right now. And and I think also, is veterinary medicine and can veterinary medicine be a primary income source as an associate? Because honestly, I think the only way to to work your way out of debt is as an owner. As an owner. Right. Well, that was exactly the next question I was going to ask. Well, you told me that. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Was... And maybe this then we can, as a neat opportunity, just to jump back onto your timeline, which we hopped off of pretty, <laughs> probably record time there, to be honest. <laughs> so let's go back onto your timeline a bit now, because your timeline is very interesting. And actually in common with some of the other people on the podcast that have really been influencers in their niches, you moved from being a, an associate into ownership quite, like relatively quickly, like When I say relatively, I mean like really very quickly. Three years. Three years. So, and I remember thinking back to when, you know, I had ambitions or interest to move into business, but my biggest fear, my biggest concern was I still suck at being a doctor. Like, I I feel like I need to know that better so as I can stand on my own feet. And that for, and this could go a lot of different directions, but for the, you know, a 85% of people that are graduating female sometimes appear to lack the confidence gene that then pushes them to take the risks required to become a business owner at a stage where maybe they're not quite the fully rounded out article, which none of us are, which like certainly when I first moved into business, I was like a long way from the rounded article and three years out from college, as awesome as you are, I suspect that it would be impossible for any of us to be the, the complete veterinarian at that point in time. So it's really, we start nudging into the imposter syndrome there and the feeling like, oh, I'm not perfect, so I can't yet take that leap. 
Can you give some insight into the thought processes that you had in making the move from being an associate? And actually, let's just let's rewind the tape slightly and go, what was your plan? Did you have a plan, always have a plan to move into ownership very quickly? How did that career section of your career develop? And what were the challenges, the processes, the demons, if you had any, that you had to slay in order to make that move? Again, a typically big nebulous question but you know you can take a bite out of that whatever way you please <laughs> so how do you eat an elephant or how do you eat a dave nichols question <laughs> one little chunk at a time exactly so i entered third year of veterinary school thinking i would become an equine orthopedic surgeon <laughs> i remember listening to the match race that held took place at belmont where ruffian who was a philly ran against I can't remember the, the stallion's name. She broke down on the track and was euthanized. It was a huge thing back in the 70s. And I talked to the veterinarian who I was working for who did some equine work on the side. And I said, why did that happen? And he explained things. So I, not just the breakdown, but why did she have to be euthanized? Because when you're 17, you don't understand all of these things. So yeah. I said, I'm going to go to vet school and make sure horses never have to get euthanized on the track again. <laughs> well... You learn a lot when you're in school. You also learn what your, your limitations are. And I learned that horses are big, fast, and can hurt you really bad. And dogs and cats are small and fast, but can't hurt you quite as bad. Right. So I left veterinary school with the thought of going to, into small animal medicine. But what's interesting, and, I, and I'll rewind the tape again just a little bit, is to me, getting into veterinary school was probably more difficult, the most difficult thing that I can think I've done in terms of professional life. Going through the curriculum in veterinary school without the pressures of trying to get into school was actually relatively easy. And graduating worked out well as well. My thoughts being that upon graduation, I would work for somebody. I had no qualms about necessarily opening a practice the first practice I worked for, I moved 2,000 miles from Illinois to Orange County, Irvine, California, took my first job, great practice, six exam rooms, 12,000 square foot, award-winning practice, and quit after three months because it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. It didn't meet my standards that I was looking for. In terms of clinical standards or clinical performance standards. standards? Clinical standards. Okay. So it was less than I had expected. And we could go off on an entire another discussion on how to, how to help young doctors don't make the same mistake I did, because that whole book is I'm writing at the moment. So I then worked for two or three other practitioners who gave me a much better taste. So learning point number one there is you learn as much from the negatives as you do from the positives. Right. Do you have a technique or a, a way that you, when you experience a negative, because certainly just even in our early conversation, and maybe you could illuminate a little more of the challenges or the processes there, you know, you experience setback and rejection from your first application. You then did the work that was necessary to chase your objective, getting to be a vet. And then that's now repeating in, okay, so the first job didn't work out. Now what's the next opportunity? So, 
and I'm guessing as you've gone through your career that you know we all experience failure, we all experience setbacks. Do you have any techniques or ways that you manage that process so that there is a you know positive momentum on the other side? I think the answer to that 30 years ago is different than the answer it is now. 30 years ago, I didn't have resources. I had family. At that point, I had a wife. Um, so a lot of it was uh, learning by mistakes. Right. More recently, by tapping into authors, by tapping into uh, psychoanalysis and other things, you find and you're willing to seek help. I, I think uh, one of the shortfalls of veterinary medicine, if, if I were to make a suggestion to my colleagues, is don't try to be everything to everybody. Yep. Hire your shortfalls. Hire your weaknesses. Surround yourself with a strong team and do what you do best, but don't try to do everything. Because when you try to do everything, that's when you make mistakes. Right. So that's a, a global answer. So yep. when I faced challenges before, I did the classic veterinarian, keep your head down, keep moving forward. It's kind of like the, the football running back. This is American football, not the Got one it. that doesn't wear pads. Um, <laughs> where you just get behind your line and just keep pushing forward. And that's what I did. That's, I persevered after... When I didn't get into veterinary school, I looked for the answers that I needed. I persevered when I, my first job didn't work. I found some new answers. And I had the classic entrepreneurial seizure. As David knows, and, and you will find out, I co-authored a book called The E-Myth Veterinarian with Michael Gerber, whose book, The E-Myth and The E-Myth Revisited, talk about the classic entrepreneurial seizure, which is where a veterinarian, in this case myself, or a technician who's doing a great job in a practice, doing the work of being a veterinarian, then decides that, oh, I'm tired of working for somebody else and making somebody else successful. I can go do it by myself. Right. And for those of you who are listening, many of you who are listening, you have had that entrepreneurial seizure. So I was driving around in South Orange County with my, my boss at that point in time, and there was some great growth going on, new homes being built, new shopping centers being built. And I said, you know, it's time. I had my epiphany or my seizure and we found a location, 50,000 new homes being built, built out of veterinary hospital. And how hard could it be? You know, I was good with the staff. I was good with the clients. I could do basic surgery. I knew how to be, to be a diagnostician. I had no problems with client communication. How hard could it be, David? <laughs> right. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, recessions hit and economic challenges hit and you all of a sudden realize that there are taxes to be paid <laughs> and that there's things that you can't say to your human resource team. By the way, I am not related to Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thank you for the clarification. So you learn by your mistakes and inventory and surgeries that you really shouldn't dive into and all of these different things. And about three years into ownership, two years into ownership, I was burned out. I was ready to put the hospital up for sale. In fact, I actually had people looking at it. And then I went back and I had, I did what, again, I talked about earlier. I put my nose down and plowed through, but I went back to school this time. Right. And I went back and started working on an MBA. Okay. So, and, and using your words, you found that the business of being a vet was harder than the, you know, the medicine, the medical section of right. being a vet. So that's an interesting place to go. So what did you learn 
in the MBA, what were the main things or the most important things you learned? What lessons have served you well from that? And how did that then impact itself and manifest itself like in the practice? Made real. So it wasn't just academic. There was something real happening. Well, the first thing I did in the MBA was listen to the other people in the room because they were from other industries. They were from Verizon. They were from hospitals. They were from restaurants. They were from all sorts of different industries and learn that veterinary medicine is no different than any other business. It's just, if you don't know how other businesses do it, you only do it one way. And what most veterinarians do, and I did the same thing, is I looked at the models of people who I had worked for right. from the time I was 15 to now the time that I was three years out of school and just use those models. And then you start to read about Harley-Davidson. You start to read about Nordstrom's. You start to read about other business models that are successful. And here's learning point number two. Veterinarians, don't model against other veterinary practices. Model against other successful businesses because veterinary medicine is no different than Starbucks. It's just that we deliver a service and we just need to learn how to deliver it in a much more effective, efficient, and consistent fashion. So the learning points from the MBA were, I now understood what a P&L was, and an income statement, and a balance sheet. And you knew what the laws were now that I had to work underneath. And I understood logistics, and I understood team building, and leadership, and all of those things that veterinary schools don't have the time to provide. And I also learned to stop Sorry for all of David's sponsors. I'm going to say something that's going to make his sponsors unhappy. I stopped reading veterinary publications except to skim them, but I started reading Entrepreneur, Inc. Magazine, Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fortune, and I started listening to experts in the field of business, Ken Blanchard, Tom Peters, and similar, so that I could learn what made other businesses more successful, and I could extrapolate those into my practice. And what I did subsequently is all of my presentations, all of my papers were based upon applying what I learned in school into my practice. So I can completely align with that. And that's, I did not do any formal education within veterinary medicine from a business point of view. I went out with also... And for those reasons, what did you bring into the practice? Like what were some of the, what things, and and maybe, I don't know if you don't want to tell us all your trade secrets or things, but what were the things that were the most impactful that were also different models? Like, because that's innovation. That's really what you're like. So there's no new ideas as such, but we're innovating, bringing ideas from another industry into the veterinary industry. What did Peter Weinstein innovate within his hospital? I think the the most important things that I innovated came from human resource marketing and then the systems side of things. I think um, the concept of marketing was very uncomfortable for most veterinarians. And we did a lot of different things from a marketing standpoint. We tried a lot of different things, but it was all focused on education and it was focused on being in front of clients on a regular basis and not just focusing on today's visit 
but focusing on long-term relationships. So it was basically creating a, a clientele that we could care for for the life of the pet and then the next pet, et cetera, et cetera. So that was on the marketing side. On the human resource side, I tried to let my team be involved with the decision-making, and we tried to empower them. I have a friend of mine, Phil Siebert, out of Tennessee, I think I heard it from him first, but basically it says, you're more likely to receive forgiveness than permission. Right, right. So we wanted the team empowered, and we started to have them involved with decision-making at all sorts of different levels so that they felt that they were part of the practice. And then I was attending a veterinary practice management seminar, probably in early 90s. And one of the speakers mentioned the E-Myth, revisited the E-Myth. And I read, I went out and bought the book, read it, dog-eared it, highlighted it, read it again. And then I started to become a stalker of Michael Gerber as he was speaking in the Orange County and L.A. area and started and to learn. Carl, Carlsbad, isn't he? He lives in Carlsbad right, now. Right. At that point in time, he was up in Santa Rosa. So he came down and he was doing some talks and I talked to some of his coaches as well, but the concepts that he talks about in the e-myth in the simplest fashion are all about creating systems within the practice so that you can deliver a consistent client experience, patient experience, staff experience, and management experience. So that it's not that you wake up every day and you're starting it from scratch. It's that you wake up every day and everything is in place already so that you don't have to worry about it. The appointment book and the story that I tell in the book and the story that kind of capped it for me and told me that I needed to do something is if you build a practice that is so dependent upon you that you can't go anywhere, then you have basically created a job and not a business. And even a prison. And a, well, a prison in many ways, yes. So I was in Las Vegas at the Western Veterinary Conference, which at that point in time was at the Las Vegas Hilton, and I got paged in the lobby to call my practice, which is never a good thing. Now, this was before cell phones, so I called, and, and to make a long story short, one of my clients wouldn't see the relief veterinarian who was there. Well, I'd only been open a year. How bonded to me could they be? Well, I was thrilled that they were bonded to me, so I had a conversation with them, but it indicated to me that the practice was too much dependent upon me and less dependent upon my team or the systems and everything else. And so the ultimate goal of the EMIF and the EMIF Revisited is, is to build a business that is dependent upon the systems and not as dependent upon you so that your staff can deliver when you're not there. I would love to talk much more about the book. And I was perhaps not quite the level of groupie of Michael Gerber's as you are, but certainly it's one of the most impactful books that I read as a young vet with entrepreneurial tendencies. I'm not sure if I'm a vet stuck in an entrepreneur's body or the other way around. I've still not worked that out. <laughs> But that was a book that captivated me. And I remember scoping out, starting to write out things that I would be doing. One of the challenges, and, and I, would, I would like, we'll talk a lot more about the book in just a second. But whilst we're on the, the topic or the subject of systematizing, one of the challenges or pushbacks that I have experienced is that doctors, the reason we say it like herding cats is they're just a rowdy bunch that don't really like to be fit into a process that the concept of clinical freedom, you know, to me, that's a weird concept because that's a concept inspired mostly by ego. Um, and when we look at the airline industry versus the medical industries, we can see like the progress the airline industry made 
is immense. Whereas the progress of medical industries, you know, technologically, yes, but comparatively, like for like surgical developments, nothing like the same scale. How do you feel about the, I'll use the words and mischievously, the imposition of systems-based management on veterinarians? How would a an owner go about developing or you know developing implementing these systems with a team that may be resistant to that great question and one that i can do a 50 minute presentation on you so i'll try to keep it, it you can take as long as you like <laughs> let me just say that i believe that foundationally every practice should have standards of care and i would suggest that if you use the standards of care as your foundation for conversation with your doctors about how to do things from a system standpoint, then you can build a level of trust. So let's pick an example of standard of care, pain management. Okay. No pet should suffer pre, intra, or post-op. No pet should be suffering at any point in time. That's a standard that you can adhere to. Yep. Now all you need to do is set up a minimum agreeable level that all doctors can agree upon for different standards from that standpoint. Any doctor can go above that standard, yep. but everybody has to adhere to that bare minimum. Okay. Okay. So you're giving them freedom, but you're also keeping them within a framework. Vaccinations are a perfect one. Okay. If you have five doctors and five different vaccination protocols, what you have is chaos. It's beyond hurting cats at that point. It's hurting ants. Okay. <laughs> and the breadcrumb isn't working. So I think that by starting with some standards of care, you now have some guidelines, which the entire team works and believes upon. It's yes. your Bible yes. from that standpoint. And then I like to push into medical protocols. Yeah. Okay. And so what I'm looking at from a medical protocol standpoint is what is your minimum database that we can all agree upon for a cat that presents at the age of 16 that's P-U-P-D-P-P? Right. Okay. And then working with that, you now have some databases to work with. Again, you can move up from there, but you can't go below it. That's one of the challenges that I've experienced in creating these is sometimes it feels like you're starting to rewrite you know, Ettinger. Right. Or, so where does one draw the line where it becomes, you've used an example there that's very much based on a clinical presentation rather than a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So how granular do you get with these things? So you could probably list out probably 14 or 15 ways an animal might present as sick from vomiting, right. to pain or red eye or whatever. Do you build the standards of care around that initial presentation sign? And then when you get to diagnostic or, you know, you get to diagnostic level, okay, we have, we've got renal disease here. So is there then a follow on protocol for that specific illness as well? How fractal do you get? How fra how molecular do I get? Right, right, or do I get atomic? Um, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, we stay molecular. I think there are some great resources in terms of algorithms for these things as well. And the reason that I like to look at it from a presentation standpoint more so than from a diagnosis standpoint is because on the appointment book, it doesn't say chronic renal disease. Right. It says the dog is urinating a lot. Right. Or the cat's urinating a lot. So what we're trying to do is not pre-diagnose before we walk in the room, is we're looking at a presentation and saying, well, what is the best thing we can do and what can we all agree on as doctors as a starting point 
to get to a diagnosis. Once you have a diagnosis, there's usually a pretty agreed upon treatment plan that is a level A or a level B. So my suggestion is to work off of the presentation first. What's your minimum database that you want for an itchy dog? Okay, it might be a skin scraping, it might be a fungal culture, whatever it is from that standpoint. The problem that by not having a minimum database, by not having standards is by having no standards, all you're doing is encouraging chaos. Okay. And when you have a client, so this is the second question that that doctors then post is, so we've got a minimum database and we want to do that, but what if the client doesn't want to do that? Are you then sucked into the chaos again? Like, where do you go? How do you direct doctors? And particularly with new graduates, sometimes those guys find it harder to... Accept no as an answer? Right. Or say it in the right way so they get yes as an answer. So it's the confidence issue at the heart of that. So what happens after that point? The client gives pushback. I think one of the ways to address client pushback is to basically to say things like, well, we as a team, all the doctors have agreed that this is a suggested workup for a case that presents this way. Now, I understand that you may have questions or there may be some issues from that standpoint. Is the greater challenge today an understanding of the cost, or do you still have questions as to why we want to do things? And I'm going to go back, and I want to focus on the fact that the biggest challenge that we're facing now in a profession, in 10 years ago, we could talk to clients and say, this is what we need. And clients would say, yes. Right. Now we say, this is what we need, and they'll say, why? And the minute you leave the room, they've got their smartphones out, and they're Googling whatever you've got. So lesson number three or four or wherever we are is tell them why beforehand. Right. Let them know why these things are needed. Let them make a decision from a level of education. I think that we need to be teachers in the exam room more than just a diagnostician. Right. We need to teach them why we need to do these things so that they can make their decisions with an appropriate level of knowledge and information. And so... That's why I think longer appointment times are appropriate and things of that nature. So the bottom line is no is usually for a reason. And the reason is usually financial or lack of information. Right. So I think that the best thing you can do with young doctors who are unsure as to what to do is make sure that they ask the client, have all your questions been answered? And make sure you identify where the pushback is coming from. Nine times out of 10, it's lack of information or financial challenge. And if it's financial challenge, make sure you have alternative options so that the client can afford the care, whether it's uh, third-party payers, uh, whether you take barter, you know, in in England, maybe you take a team of horses in exchange for (laughs) cystotomy. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But uh, whatever it is, there's a reason a client is not going forward. And I would actually suggest that in many cases, it's lack of trust. And lack of trust comes from lack of information and a lack of communication. Okay. I agree with that. I'm quite fascinated by that, the comment of bartering there now. So not actually something, and as a practice owner, I have never really given it thought and say, you know, it's like the restaurant equivalent of, you know, you wash the dishes and, we'll, you know, you can have your meal. Have you had any interesting circumstances or instances where you've bartered something and how has that worked? I can imagine that being quite an amusing or interesting way to run the business. I should probably have you edit that out. But 
there are parts of this country that have done a lot of business on barter, especially in rural areas. Yeah. Although I would say in my youth, when I was practicing, I received a, a litho in exchange for neutering a dog. What's a, a litho? Uh, artwork. Piece okay, of artwork. Got it, got signed it. artwork. Lithographed. A lithograph. Got signed it. artwork for doing a neuter. I did some exchange of services for work in the hospital. Who was the litho of or from? It or? was from a small artist in Laguna Beach. Okay. We did some work for an exchange of services within the practice. Yep. I was joking about the, um, the team of horses for a cystotomy, but I had a, a practice where I had this conversation in Kentucky where they got a team of horses in exchange for a perineal urethrostomy. And when you say a team of horses? Three. They got three horses? Three working horses in exchange for urethrostomy. For keeps, not for, for like... Keeps, no. That's a good deal. Well, it is, depending upon whether you look at horses like a boat as an investment or as a lost leader. That's true. So, <laughs> I'm sure there's a cost. There's mouths to feed. So I was being a little sarcastic on barter as much as I really want practices to find ways to work with their clients so that cost isn't the barrier to the presentation and treatment of their pets. And we can get into a whole sidebar on pet insurance and other things to help offset the cost of care. But we really need to, to be able to increase the economic survival of this profession. We need to find ways to work with clients to make veterinary care more affordable because it is competing for discretionary dollars, yep. not for budgeted dollars. So, and I know your, your background in the American pet insurance industry. So here's a question that's always fascinated me. Why is America so resistant to pet insurance compared to the UK? Why is America so resistant to pet insurance? And let me give the backdrop to that. For So pet insurance in the UK was up around about 30% of the market versus the US where it's crept along is maybe, is it up to 3% yet? If it's, if it's 3%, it's twice what I think it is. Okay, right. So an awful long way behind, which always strikes me as odd given we have an NHS and, and are quite resistant to that as an insurance product versus it seems to be something like people hold insurance here more. So as a, it's more something that it seems natural to me that Americans would be more au fait with that as a product. And yet that number baffles me a little bit. Do you have any insights into why that is and what veterinarians, I mean, globally, but particularly in the US and to a certain extent Australia, a strong listener based in Australia as well, what they might do to improve the insurance uptake locally in their own practices? Pet insurance has been in the US for about 40 years, I believe, late 70s, early 80s, Jack Stevens and veterinary pet insurance. And the original purveyors or providers were it was sold through veterinary hospitals. They weren't insurance salespeople. They just made it available to their pets' owners. And that really extended probably until I worked in the industry in the early 2000s. And so veterinarians were then the advocates and the cheerleaders for the pet health insurance industry. Not a good group to have as cheerleaders. And there has always been a fear amongst veterinarians, this is what I call the fear factor, they would rather be in a tank of rattlesnakes <laughs> than to talk about pet insurance. Right. Because the human healthcare insurance model isn't getting any simpler by what's currently going on in the world. So right. there is a fear amongst veterinarians of pet health insurance following the same human model, even though pets are property and this is property insurance more so than a health insurance model. It's not a managed care model. So 
veterinarians have to get over that factor. And it wasn't until recently that the pet insurance companies themselves and the insurance policies gave a high enough return to the pet owners to make it of greater value. So there's competition does strange things and it improves things most of the time. And that's what I think we're seeing in the pet health insurance industry. So I think we've got to get past some of the fear factor that veterinarians have. I think we've got to get past some of the websites out there that if you Google pet health insurance are so negative. And I, I think we've got to look at ways to even make pet health insurance more affordable because it's really a middle class product at the moment until we can make it even more affordable. Yeah. Okay. That was a completely left field sidebar question. So tell me how you, like, I'm curious, like, so we really sort of delved into the book without saying with delved into the book. I've thoroughly enjoyed the writings in this book, Peter, and um, it really, even with my interest in systems, it really fired me up to further systematize and just get the job done. I'm a little interested also in like you started to talk about like you're vaguely stalking Michael Gerber around. How did the deal come about and like how did that whole thing happen? Funny story. So I was in Seattle, Washington about four years ago, I believe, at the Pac-12 Swimming and Diving Championships for my daughter who was a, a college swimmer at University of Southern California. And I got a phone call that said, this is such and such from um, Michael Gerber, Michael E. Gerber Company, and Michael would like to talk to you about co-authoring a book with him. So I got the voicemail, came back to my room, and I called the number thinking that this was some sort of scam. <laughs> you know, I mean... Or your college mates yeah, stitching exactly. you up for. Some, some joke. So I called, and I had this conversation, and I said, so where did you get my name? They said, apparently... You spoke recently at the Western Veterinary Conference or some conference in Las Vegas, and you mentioned that a must-read for all small businesses, and especially veterinarians, is The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And they called our company because The E-Myth is out of print, and we obviously got them The E-Myth Revisited. But Michael heard that, and he wanted to speak to you. And I said, okay, good. Well, then let's get another phone call with him and get him on the phone with me because I know his voice is distinctive He's enough. He's got a very distinctive voice. And until I speak with him, I have no interest in moving further because I still didn't trust this. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm a vet. I'm a cynic. I'm a skeptic. <laughs> and so we did a follow-up call. I think I was still in Seattle for the follow-up call. And I spent 45 minutes to an hour with Michael on the phone. And his voice was just like his voice that I remembered from the early 90s. And uh, we talked about what he was looking for. And I talked about what, you know, first of all, I was sweating like a pig, I think, because I was just like (laughs) speaking to a global business legend. Yeah, I was like, oh, wow, I'm speaking to my hero. Um, (laughs) I know that's probably how people at your your seminars come in when they come and talk to you. Like I am now. <laughs> so, uh, don't edit this part out. But yeah. anyhow, one thing came to another. There was a template that he was using to put the books together. He asked me to take a look at some of the other books that were done with the chiropractor and the optometrist, I believe, which I did. And I also had gone back and I reread the E-Myth Physician, which yeah. came back, was issued many years ago. And I said, you know, 
I talked to Sharon, my wife, and I said, I don't know, this is really scary. And I said, but there's probably nobody out there better to write it than I am. Sorry, that wasn't an ego sort of thing. I just, you know, it, it's just one of those things that I said to myself. So, and um, so I went about and did it. It's a f- phenomenal achievement and uh, congratulations on the book. Were there any learning experiences along the way of going through the publishing process that you take away? Like, did you come away from it richer? And so, and I'm not like, not talking financially, but I don't want to be crass. I would never be crass, of course. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, Bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) But what were the learnings that you took away from that process? I'm always fascinated by the process of creation and creativity. And like as vets, we're not often that, creative but i do think like if we had a more innovative creative processes then we could do more exciting things with our practices and make them more unique so were there any takeaways for you in going through that process yeah you don't write a book you rewrite a book (laughs) (laughs) oh brother yeah okay and i think what was great from my standpoint is it forced me to to go back and remember things because this is 20 years 18 years later after I left practice. And so I went and found some of the documents that we had and dug up some different things. And I think that for me it was easy because I had a message. And my message was that it doesn't have to be that hard and that we as veterinarians make our practices much harder than they have to be. I'll sidebar a little bit in saying that veterinary medicine is already a very, very, very complicated business. We have a more moving parts than any other human healthcare business in terms of the fact that, David, when you're ready for your colonoscopy, you can go in for it, but at the same time, they're probably not going to give you a pedicure and a bath. Right. And... We have all of those different things that are going on. What are you laughing at? I'm just laughing at the thought of, I'm slightly disappointed I'm not going to get a pedicure and, and a bath after my colonoscopy. Yeah, and there won't be any happy end. Well, there may be a happy ending, so <laughs> have fun editing this. So I think that, that the learning point is it is that we have to help each other out, and yeah. I think we have to help each other find successful business models that we can learn from. Yep. And it's not going to be from what was done in the practice I worked for in the 1970s or what James Harriet did in the 1920s and 30s. It's going to come from other business entities, whether it's human healthcare or whether it's restaurant industry, hotel industry, whatever it is. But we need to try to learn from other businesses. And so I think the process of writing a book is great because it forces you to introspect. Yeah. And be critical of yourself. And then when you give it to somebody else, let them be critical of you. And I don't know about you, David, but I'm not really good at taking criticism. So I've improved over the years. Yeah. My skin has gotten a lot thicker, but it's tough. Yeah. And you take a lot of criticism and rewrites and edits when you're writing a book. Absolutely. It's brutal. Future casting threats to the profession like are there any big existential threats on the horizon that you can see that have you concerned or have you strategizing for the future over the next sort of five ten years what are you looking at i think we're our greatest threat i think the failure to 
be willing to change and look at things differently is greater than any external threat. I don't think corporate medicine is a threat. I don't think that cost of products is a threat. I think maybe scarcity of products is a threat. I think the unwillingness to identify and create and develop different business models to deliver veterinary health care is a greater threat. I think that the, the way we've been doing it is a challenge, and we've got to find different ways. And I would say the same thing regarding the education process. I think that failure to change the education process provides a threat. And I would also suggest, and as somebody who runs a professional association, organized veterinary medicine and the way we develop and provide organized veterinary medicine has to change as well. So maybe I'm gutting the entire profession. Sounds like a revolution. Yeah. Well, no, we have to reimagine the entire veterinary profession going forward and not continue to look through the rearview mirror, but start to look down the road through the windshield and try to figure out how to get to a future that gives young veterinarians an opportunity to be successful, to raise a family, to have a life balance, and to give back to the profession and get from the profession as much as they give to it. So when is the reimagination committee that's going to have influential people from universities, with cloud, from business, from all walks of life, including, I think, representation from the people we're going to be employing in the future. So when are you going to chair that one and convene that one? As soon as we get done with this, and you and I will sit down, because you're not getting away without being involved with that. <laughs> you know, I, I think there are some young leaders out there. You know, I, I enjoy what, what you do. I enjoy what uh, Dr. Andy Rourke does and others similar who are now in the next generation of futurists. But I still think there needs to be some more global talk. And I think there can't be a fear of, I don't think there can be a fear of changing the status quo. I think there has to be an eagerness to change the status quo, make mistakes, and retool it. I think the biggest thing we are afraid of is making mistakes. And I'm not talking about clinical mistakes and life-threatening mistakes, but I am talking about, you know, I changed a lot in my hospital after I got done reading the E-Myth and getting my MBA, and it worked. If you don't make change, you can't move forward. And I think that's, yeah, it's going to need a a group of of leaders to rattle some cages and make people uncomfortable. And I'm all for making people uncomfortable. It's got to happen. Okay, so I'm going to move into, and and by the way, we'll have show notes on the show. So we will link up to Peter's book and the audio version. I'm an audio junkie, so we'll put both links in there. And any links or any resources we've sort of mentioned, um, we will certainly post links into there. So the more rapid fire end of the, and I'm going to ask them, you don't have to rapid fire the answers, okay? Um, So I've just got this long list of questions and I'll just choose the ones that make you feel the least comfortable or Mike, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You're not going to do much that hasn't made me uncomfortable in the past. (laughs) Okay. My clothes are still on. (laughs) For the benefit of the audio, I can confirm that is the case. So we'll start easy. Um, What's the thing that Peter Weinstein does better than anybody else? What's your superpower? I would, and again, that's a question that's very difficult to answer for somebody who likes to perceive himself as being relatively humble. And I just think I can see a global picture. I don't think my vision is narrow. And so as a result, by seeing a global picture, I can help 
visualize a greater good. What on the flip side of that is your kryptonite? I know it's hard to believe, but self-confidence. I really am very self-critical about everything I write, everything I say. I did an interview yesterday that was uh, about the fires that are up in Los Angeles, and it was published online last night, and I'm reading it, and I'm, I'm saying, did I say that? What are people going to think of it? So I am horrendously self-critical. Oh, I'm just not even going to send you this podcast. I'm <laughs> just going to berate yourself. I won't listen to it. You won't really, listen to because it. Because I hate listening to myself. I need to, but I, I don't. It's just a, I'm self-critical. It's very interesting the number of people who are complete rock stars that actually that's, a, that's not an uncommon thing that I've heard back from that question. Damn it, then I should have come up with a different answer. Now I'm going to criticize myself for having the same answer <laughs> as everybody else. <laughs> we're, stuck in the, we're stuck in the whirlpool. Yeah. Okay, if you could be, like, so imagine, and I'm, this is going to, again, push you out of your humble zone. Imagine you are a veterinary god floating around all over veterinary medicine. If you could change one thing to improve veterinary medicine, what would it be? If I could change one thing about veterinary medicine. You know, I can't control and change the past. So all I can do is help set a better future. And I would like to see that we as a profession and the veterinary schools go and start to get into the kindergarten classes and the elementary schools and the middle schools and the high schools and start to encourage people to become veterinarians and coach them and make them think about becoming into the veterinary profession. And I think we need to look at what we accept into veterinary schools and not just being good veterinary students, but being people who can contribute from an entrepreneurial standpoint and a clinical standpoint to the long-term success of the veterinary profession. I am not sure that we are necessarily choosing, and I'm sorry for any veterinary students who hear this, but I'm not sure we're necessarily choosing the best of the best to be veterinarians as we are choosing the best of the best to be veterinary students. And I really think we need to start to look at finding visionaries and leaders and entrepreneurs and not just good students. Okay. What was the best piece of advice you've ever given or received? You can choose either, either side of that. The best piece of advice I ever received, I think it was Henry David Thoreau. The only obligation you ever have a right to assume is that which you believe is correct or right. And what would the worst piece of advice you've ever given or received be? The worst piece of advice I ever received was my guidance counselor in high school who said, why don't you become a real doctor? Because he didn't know what veterinarians were all about. That was in high school. I think the worst piece of advice that I've ever given, I don't know. I, I'm sure I've given plenty of bad <laughs> advice and I'm, I'm trying to put that out of my memory. <laughs> Do you have any, I mean, you must be working on a lot of different projects and things, but are there any tools or work like apps or cool things that you've got in your life at the minute that just you've made like profoundly impactful beneficially? You know, I, I have an iPhone, I have an iPad to me, Kindle on my iPad and uh, iBooks on my iPad allows me to read very easily anywhere at the gym, uh, audible, audible.com and listening to books. I'm a, an education junkie, as you might have figured out. <laughs> so uh, when I'm in the car, I think that if I were to give a message that, that taps into apps and is 
use technology to learn from and learn with. So if you're going to listen to David's podcast, listen to it in the car on the way to work, listen to it at the gym, and continue to learn. And so those are the things that I use most from that standpoint. Other than your own excellent book and the original E-Myth, what's the other book that you would recommend to people that's had the biggest impact in your life? 100% certain on this answer. The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. That book, which I read when it first came out, now, for those of you who don't know Jack Canfield's name, he's the one who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. There are 64 success principles of this that came out. I think I read it in 2005-ish. And the first principle, which is a mantra that I, I believe in very much, is take 100% responsibility for your actions. Oh, I love that. And I find a world and I'm not going to go into politics, but I find a world that likes to blame everybody else for the problems that are going on and not look in the mirror and recognize what problems you've created. So I think that the success principles by Jack Canfield, and I do some lectures on it as well, has just been an invaluable book for me in my life. It's changed me. Just, that's probably my favorite question unfortunately adds to my to-do list and I continue to add books which I now think I have to get that book on my to-do list thank god for audible yes as I can say um if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation what would it be that's graduating as a vet oh graduate <laughs> thank you one piece of advice at graduation would be learn the business of veterinary medicine whether you're going to be an owner an associate whatever the case may be, because you're not going to be able to get away from it in whatever you do. Advice number two, or 1A, was learn how to be a public speaker and improve your communication skills, because everything in life is about communication. And you can swerve this one if you like, but what's the most controversial thing people don't know about you that matters? The most controversial thing that people don't know about me that matters. Oh, I'm a New York Yankees fan. <laughs> Blood is pinstripe blue and white. And you are not going to get me to change that, even though I've been living in California for 30-something years. So it's probably like somebody being a, a um, Liverpool fan and living in London or something. Oh, like yeah. That. I think the, the Liverpoolian out there would, would definitely agree with that. So, and, uh, as a Celtic fan... Glasgow Celtic okay. fan myself, I would definitely concur that pretty much everyone's blood is is the color of their football team. So, and how is that for a BS answer when you're looking for something a little bit more in depth? No, it's a swerve, but it's all good. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. So, do you have a Twitter account? Or do I do you have Instagram? a Twitter account. Okay, so you can choose your social media device or, or account of choice. If you could send one tweet or Instagram or Facebook post to the world, and everybody could get it that pop up on their phone, what would it be? What would it say? Take time to smell the roses and the coffee and enjoy life every day because you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You don't know what later today is going to bring. So find some time for yourself to enjoy the world around you. Lovely. I think that's as nice a point as I can imagine to end our conversation this time around, I feel like I could ask you an awful lot of questions and I would have an awful lot to learn from you. So we'll, we'll wrap up by just asking 
for people who want to learn more about Peter Weinstein and your work or to get hold of a copy of The Myth Veterinarian, which I strongly recommend everybody does, um, where is the best place to connect with you and to get hold of your book? The book's available on Amazon, and I will let David choose one person who's listening to the podcast to give a copy of the book to. That is a very kind offer. All right, well, we'll have to find a way to make that. So the way you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have to get that hooked up is if you hit me on Instagram, and I think what we need is your best photo of you in veterinary practice doing something awesome. Okay, and awesome, you can define that. So send me a photo. It's at Dr. Dave Nickel on Instagram or tag me in that photo and we will choose a winner and we will get you a copy of Peter's book. And that'd be great. It's very generous of you. Thank you kindly. My pleasure. By the way, he was saying the word photo, not photo. But (laughs) (laughs) for those of you who are American and couldn't understand. Just getting absolutely paid out for my accent whilst I come across here. The, The best way to reach me is probably by email. Okay. Peter Weinstein, DVM, MBA at gmail.com. I'll spell my name because those of you who don't know how to spell Harvey, it's P as in Peter, E-T-E-R-W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, DVM, MBA at gmail.com. I will be more than happy to um, communicate with anybody, try to cheer anybody up, cheer anybody on. I like to look at myself as a cheerleader and an advocate for the profession. In my role with the Southern California VMA, I look at organized veterinary medicine as being the advocates for the veterinary profession. So I I look at myself and stop looking at me like I'm wearing a skirt and carrying pom-poms. I look at myself as a cheerleader for the veterinary profession. Awesome. Peter, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you. I'm very grateful for you writing that book and also for the the time coming down here. All the best to you, to Sharon and to your family, and I look forward to the next time we meet. I look forward to it as well, and for those of you who hear this before the holidays, have a happy holiday, have a wonderful new year. Here's to a great 2018 and a great future. Thanks for listening to the show, and my thanks to Peter for being such a great guest. Now, to win a copy of his book, The E-Myth Veterinarian, don't forget to post your photo doing something awesome in your veterinary practice. Stick that on Instagram, tag me, I'm at Dr. Dave Nicol, that's D-R-D-A-V-E-N-I-C-O-L. That's it for this episode. If you liked it, don't forget to leave some feedback and a rating on iTunes, please. As we build more listeners, we can also twist more arms to come on the show, and your reviews help do just that. It's a total win-win. So until next time, be safe, be well, and be happy. This is Dr. Dave Nichol signing off from Blunt Dissection. Blunt Dissection.